From claim to blame, how an ICBC employee stole thousands from the insurer and what happened when he got caught. A homeless woman wakes up with flames closing in. It's doubly concerning when a crime like this happens against a person who's vulnerable and disadvantaged. The surveillance video that could help solve the case. And a shattered family battles nightmare tenants. They're just refusing to leave even though the house is sold. Forced to sell after a tragedy why the deal is in jeopardy. You're lucky I don't punch you in the face. Get off my property. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We'll have those stories for you in just a moment. But first, a Global News exclusive. We are learning of a case of queue jumping for the COVID vaccine. At Royal Columbian Hospital, accusations that shots went into the arms of administrators and their family members instead of frontline workers. Sarah McDonald has the exclusive details. Well, two hospital directors, a porter and a screener. Those are the Fraser Health employees that we know of accused of jumping the queue for COVID-19 vaccines by their colleagues. Here's what we know happened. On December 27th, less than two weeks after the first COVID-19 vaccination was administered in this province, a vaccine clinic at Royal Columbian Hospital was left with 17 unadministered doses. So the executive director overseeing that clinic reached out to other directors in the Fraser Health region to offer them up. We know a director at Peace Arch Hospital who colleagues say is not involved in day-to-day direct patient care, her son, and her son-in-law, a porter and a screener respectively, also at Peace Arch Hospital, ultimately received three of those leftover doses, well before many frontline workers received their own vaccinations. Days later, another director assisting with an on-site immunization clinic also received a leftover vaccination, though she was advised to by public health officials. Fraser Health confirming the vaccination of those three family members back in December, saying clinic staffers regularly reach out to priority staff in the instance of leftover doses to avoid vaccine wastage. Though what exactly constitutes priority? The frontline workers who flagged these allegations of queue jumping to Global News say none of the four people they accuse of doing so have intimate or direct contact with patients on a regular basis, like say a nurse or a doctor would. And the question remains, what happened to those other 14 doses on December 27th and how many others have potentially jumped the line ahead of frontline workers in the weeks since. When asked if any other directors, board members or their relatives have received the COVID-19 vaccine, Fraser Health would only say no other members of its senior executive team have. Sarah McDonald, Global News, New Westminster. Well, to date, 62,294 people have received a COVID-19 vaccine in B.C. Here's a look at the latest numbers for our province. We have 446 new cases, bringing B.C.'s total to 58,553. Nine more deaths, which means we've now lost 1,019 people to complications from the virus. 368 people are in hospital, 72 in the ICU. 51,144 people are considered recovered, and we are now left with just over 5,000 active cases and 7,238 people in isolation. Keith Baldry joins us with more on the numbers and a rather unique statistic to this year, (laughs) Keith, and the impact of the pandemic. 
Yeah, we've been trying to get a handle on whether or not there was those proverbial improper gatherings and parties on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. One way to figure that out, look at the case numbers. They really haven't spiked since then, through the, the days at, in the aftermath. So that's one indication. Another good one, though, is to check out the emergency room visits on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, traditionally the highest uh, in any time in the year. And look at this. It's down significantly from the previous year. New Year's Eve down 23 percent, almost 1,500 fewer visits. New Year's Day down more than 2,100, a 30 percent drop from last year. That's a pretty good indication because doctors will tell you many of the uh, visits to emergency wards, emergency rooms on those two days are party related, alcohol related. And those numbers tell us that's more than 3,600 people who did not visit the emergency room in the same way that was visited last time. Another good indication perhaps that people did uh, obey the rules for the most part and did not party in large numbers on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. All right. Interesting numbers. Thanks, Keith. Well, the national COVID numbers are alarming. Ontario has released its latest batch of COVID modeling data, which shows the province is heading for a huge surge in cases with the health care system on the brink of collapse. At the same time, the federal government and Pfizer have reached a deal to secure enough vaccine to ensure every eligible Canadian can get their two doses. Necky has the latest. Since Boxing Day, schools and non-essential businesses in Ontario have been locked down and still, on average, there are 3,500 new cases every day. The number of cases and the number of deaths due to COVID-19 are at the highest levels since the start of the pandemic a year ago. And in a few short weeks, our hospital and ICU capacity could be overwhelmed. Best case scenario in just one month, there'll be 5,000 new cases a day. More likely 10 to 20,000 new cases daily if nothing's done. Ontario's health care system is already on the brink of collapse. We'll have to confront choices that no doctor ever wants to make and no family ever wants to hear. They will be choices about who will get the care they need and who will not. So, Ontario's declaring another state of emergency. Schools in the hardest-hit regions will remain closed until at least February 10th. Enforcement will be increased for a new stay-at-home order starting Thursday. I know the stay-at-home order is a drastic measure. One, we don't take lightly. Everyone must stay home to save lives. Residents are asked to only leave their homes for essential needs like groceries and health care. Quebec implemented an 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. curfew on Saturday. A special police curfew unit has issued hundreds of fines ranging from $1,000 to $6,000. Meanwhile, Ottawa announced it has ordered another 20 million vaccines from Pfizer. From our agreements with Moderna and Pfizer alone, we will now have 80 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines arriving this year. Authorities in Ontario and Quebec fear those vaccines will come too late if something isn't done now. Province-wide lockdowns and overnight curfews are meant to bridge that gap between now and June, when Ottawa claims half the country could be vaccinated. And everyone who wants a vaccine will have it by the end of September. Tension Global News. A B.C. man has been sentenced to two years in jail for theft in a case that raises questions about ICBC's control over its finances. As Romina Dea reports, the employee's two-year fraud scheme only came to an end when bank employees noticed something suspicious. 31-year-old Paul Martin Punter pleaded guilty last month to one count of theft over $5,000. The former ICBC claims specialist was sentenced to two years in jail 
Plus, he's been ordered to pay back hundreds of thousands of dollars. You stole a great deal of money, said the judge. $420,168. You stole over and over again over a period of two years through the use of 156 fraudulent checks. You only stopped when you were arrested. According to a joint submission by Crown and Defence, the fraud was not overly complicated. Hunter created false third-party checks from ICBC and deposited them into his TD account using a mobile banking app. He was not listed as the payee. Despite the fake checks listing other individuals and organizations, the TD app accepted the deposits. Even Punter was surprised the checks cleared. Most of the money was spent on sports betting on playnow.com. Two years passed before Punter was caught. The fraud discovered by bank employees when Punter tried to obtain a mortgage in 2019. Your actions were not motivated by greed, said the judge. They were motivated by a diagnosed and severe gambling addiction disorder. You did not live a lavish lifestyle. Banking records established that all of what you stole was gambled away. Punter has been given 20 years to pay back the money. He confessed when he was arrested. It's his first criminal offense. The judge believes he's remorseful. Now, Punter is a permanent resident, so he will likely be sent back to the UK after he has served his time. Punter's wife was arrested as part of this investigation, but she was cleared of any wrongdoing. Romina Dea, Global News. Now, in a statement late this afternoon, ICBC says it took immediate action as soon as the theft was uncovered and it has made significant improvements to its systems to make sure it doesn't happen again. The corporation also says it has recovered the vast majority of the stolen money. Vancouver police are investigating a disturbing crime and they need your help identifying a suspect. It happened in mid-December when a man set fire to a homeless woman's blankets as she slept. Nadia Stewart joins us live with more, including, Nadia, video that might help solve the case. Yeah, and based on what we see in this video, that woman who is at the center of all this, we can see that she was able to get away, but we know that she has not yet come forward to police about what happened to her on December the 13th at around 4 o'clock in the morning. And what you do see here in this video is somewhat disturbing. Now, all we know about this woman is that she appears to be white and in her 30s. She has dark shoulder-length hair and was wearing a gray full-length button-up jacket. Now, police say a man walked up to her, pacing around her. It's not clear whether the two were acquainted or knew each other in any way. He then sets her belongings on fire and walks away. The fire smolders for several minutes, spreading to her blanket and the jacket she was wearing. Police say if she had not escaped when she did, this could have been tragic. Because she is vulnerable and this uh, person who appears out of nowhere, lights are on fire, it's, it's doubly concerning for us. Obviously, it's concerning any time uh, somebody is assaulted and we um, do our utmost to solve those crimes, but it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's doubly concerning when a crime like this happens against a person who's, um, who's vulnerable and disadvantaged. So, again, I would like uh, anybody who knows uh, the victim uh, or if the victim is watching uh, to contact our investigators um, and help us move this investigation forward. 
Now, we do have a description of the suspect. He appears to be white, between 35 and 50 years old, between about 5 foot 5 and 5 foot 10 inches tall. Now, the key is the jacket that he was wearing. It was a black and white Oakland Raiders jacket. And that's the video, that, that's the jacket that you see him wearing in that video. Police are once again appealing for witnesses, anyone who might have been here near Queen Elizabeth Theatre on December the 13th at around 4 o'clock in the morning. If they heard or saw anything, give VPD a call. Back to you. Nadia Stewart in Vancouver. Thanks, Nadia. The Independent Investigation Office has been called in following a police-involved shooting in Chilliwack. RCMP say they were called just after 7 a.m. for a complaint of a man who injured and threatened a woman inside a home. The woman escaped and the man left, but continued to send threatening messages. Just after 8.30, the man was located in a vehicle parked at the end of Lickman Road near the Veta River. More officers arrived at the scene, and during the ensuing interaction, the man was shot. We're on scene with our forensic team, um, conducting uh, a forensic examination of the scene to obtain what objective evidence we can uh, about what happened, which would include evidence of shots being fired and from where and what direction, all, all of that. Um, is very important to our investigation. We're also, we'll do a canvas of the area to see if there were any witnesses, see if there's any video available. The man was taken to hospital and BCEHS says he was in critical condition. Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou was back in court today trying to get her bail conditions eased. Meng's husband, Lu Xiaozong, testified today that he believes his wife faces an increased risk of COVID-19 exposure from the multiple security guards that accompany her whenever she leaves home. He also says the couple's children are worried the security guards will lead them to being publicly identified. Court also heard about Mung's lavish lifestyle while under house arrest in Vancouver and that back in May, under the assumption Mung was about to be freed, a Boeing 777 was chartered to fly her back to China. Mung is facing extradition to the United States where she's facing fraud charges. The acknowledgement of unceded ancestral lands is now considered a common courtesy on the path to reconciliation. It happens at a lot of public events these days, but Surrey is not willing to make it an official requirement. Why City Council there decided against it. That's next on the News Hour. On the eve of the first game of the season, how COVID is changing the Canucks roster. That's coming up later in sports. And after two devastating acts of vandalism, why the owners of the Sea to Sky gondola are suing their insurer. That's coming up. But first, every news conference and event that involves members of the provincial government opens with an acknowledgement of Indigenous land. But Surrey City Council voted against adopting it as official policy. Surrey Councillor Jack Hundile is the one who introduced the motion, but as Catherine Urquhart reports, he was shocked and disappointed when the mayor's Safe Surrey Coalition voted it down. It's uh, the traditional territory of the Lekongan-speaking people, the Songhees, Nisquamalt First Nations, that's the territory we're on here at the legislature today. It has become common practice at the beginning of most government press conferences and meetings. I too would like to uh, acknowledge that we're on the unceded traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh people and I want to thank them for their generosity. Acknowledging Indigenous lands shows respect, 
a commitment to reconciliation and takes mere moments to verbalize. And we are grateful for the keepers of this land and, and look to them for guidance and strength when we're going through this difficult time together. But in the city of Surrey, that won't be happening anytime soon at council and committee meetings. I was kind of sh- taken back uh, with a commentary and certainly with a vote. On Monday, Councillor Hundile's motion to have a brief acknowledgement of Indigenous lands was voted down by Mayor Doug McCallum and the rest of his Safe Surrey coalition. I'm not going to support it, um, not because I, I don't think it's right, it's because I think we're doing an excellent job currently. Councillor Lori Guerra told Global News, I believe the city already has a comprehensive Indigenous engagement policy that guides the city's current practice of Indigenous acknowledgement, and I have a problem with legislating speech. The United Nations have come out and said it. You know, the federal government, provincial government, and local governments are starting to do it. So it's really a progressive step in the right direction, and honestly, it's the right thing to do. Global News sought comment from several Indigenous groups, including Semiamu First Nation and the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. So far, they have not weighed in. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Next month will mark five years since Caitlin Potts disappeared from the Okanagan. And while police suspect foul play, they have yet to solve the case. Now, as Global's Megan Turcato explains, an unusual fundraising effort is underway to try to launch a private investigation. Well, I feel so hopeful that there's people out there and, and to help people. Like- hopeful that an unusual fundraising effort might provide answers about her daughter's disappearance. 27-year-old Caitlin Potts went missing from the Okanagan almost five years ago. We believe this is likely uh, a homicide. She has likely met with foul play. But her remains have never been found, leaving her family grieving and without definite answers. She has a child. Um, he's still at a lot, like at a loss. Now, with the family's blessing, an Edmonton woman has started a fundraising effort to try and hire a private investigator to look into Caitlin's case. Like I say, police don't investigate enough. At least we feel that way. And I'm hoping that hiring a PI, they can look into more details. They can bring her case back to life. Victoria Love says she was motivated to take action after researching Caitlin's case for a series of TikTok posts she's created spotlighting unsolved murders and disappearances. So after years of searching for her daughter, Priscilla Potts hopes a PI might help lead them to Caitlin and to justice. It's time that Priscilla Pods, she gets closure for her daughter and her family. Well, I can't wait for the day that I can finally say thank you, Lord. Megan Turcato, Global News, Vernon. Some breaking weather developments for you now. A wind warning has just been issued and the gusts could cause some damage. Meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us with the details. Christy. Sophie, we've already had two ferry cancellations through this evening, so you'll want to check with BC Ferries if you're traveling, especially into tomorrow morning. There's a chance we could see at least some delays and power outages are possible overnight. Here are the wind warnings that are in effect. It's for the Southern Gulf Islands, Victoria region, as well now parts of Metro Vancouver from the North Shore through Central Metro Vancouver and Southwestern sections. Gusts up to 70 kilometers an hour. They should die down tomorrow morning, but we still have rainfall warnings in effect. 
and significant snow expected in the interior. I'll show you your travel conditions when I come back. Thanks, Christy. Still ahead, a dog owner's dilemma. I actually didn't realize that there was a height restriction. A woman forced to make an agonizing choice. The reasons she and other residents say it's unfair. Also tonight, battling bad tenants who stopped paying rent. Why the sale of the home might fall through. Traffic has eased off a little bit now, eastbound on Highway 1 through Vancouver and into the Burnaby Lake stretch after clearing some earlier problems. Now there's a new crash. It's eastbound Highway 1 at the end of the Cassiar Tunnel. As a medically regulated business, Connect Hearing has strict safety protocols. They are safe, open, and ready to discuss your hearing health. Book your free consultation at connecthearing.ca. I'm Trish Ewison in the Global Traffic Center. The province's pandemic-inspired ban on evictions is making life tough for a Delta family who tragically lost their husband and father last year. They've been trying to sell their rental home in Chilliwack, but they're unable to evict their current tenants, even though they're not paying rent. Aaron MacArthur reports. It's been seven months, and Arud Sheikh still has trouble believing her husband is gone. Kashif drowned saving their daughter on Father's Day near Kelowna. It's just still very surreal. I'm still in shock. The situation has been devastating financially. Kashif, a realtor, was the primary income earner. And Aruj has been left to pick up the pieces. A big part of her plan was to sell the rental home the couple had invested in. I'm working part-time. I have four children. It's very unexpected, like your breadwinner is gone. All of a sudden you have this huge loss of income. Um, I just can't afford that property. The home was put on the market almost immediately, but the tenants made the situation extremely difficult, often refusing showings with late or non-existent rent payments, forcing the widow to cover the shortfall on her mortgage. You don't, you don't know the whole story? There's really nothing that I have not done legally to get everything checked off. We've given them enough notice. We've been very accommodating with them, but um, I don't know what to do. Like, what, what are we supposed to do now? The sale was eventually completed. The closing date set for the end of this month. It's a widow, my four kids can't pay The tenants refusing to move out. She put her house up for sale within two weeks of her husband dying. Her husband would never do that to us. We've been here for three years. We asked someone at the home why there were issues with rent and why they were refusing to move. You're lucky you don't punch you in the face. Get the off my property. Get off my property. Okay? Why don't you tell us your Get story? off my property. Get the whole story. Get the whole story. A company that specializes in evictions has been hired to remove the tenants. With little success, the residential tenancy branch has told Aruj an eviction hearing isn't likely to happen until March at the earliest. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. A Surrey woman says she has been forced to sell her condo and move because of her building's rules on pets. She admits to not checking the bylaws before buying her golden retriever, but claims other owners are also violating the rules and she's being singled out. Grace Key reports. Let's go. Huh? Good girl. 
Scout has become a joyful companion for Rabia Morani throughout the pandemic. She adopted the nine-month-old Golden Retriever in May, but soon after it was told there was a height restriction for dogs at her Surrey condominium. I knew that you were allowed to have one dog or one cat, um, but I actually didn't realize that there was a height restriction. And, you know, I definitely take accountability for that. The restriction is 14 inches from floor to shoulder. Scout is 20 inches. Rabia petitioned to get the bylaw changed, needing 75% support from neighbors. The dog is extremely well behaved. Uh, it's always on a leash, very obedient. Uh, we've got other dogs in the building that make a heck of a lot more noise. Rabia got a letter indicating she didn't get the votes needed, so Strata Council voted for her to remove her dog by December 6, 2020. She feels she's being singled out, saying one resident also has a large dog and another one too many cats. It's not really a bylaw issue. It's, it's about the discriminatory enforcement of them. So if I was the only one that was violating the bylaw and I received a notice... I would completely understand. Rabia was told under strata rules there must be a complaint before action is taken. And no other owners got complaints except her. So she lodged a complaint against the other owners and asked about hers. You know, you think that you'd potentially have an opportunity to rectify it, but they actually haven't been able to produce a complaint yet. The strata manager and council president declined comments citing privacy reasons. Rabia has decided to sell her condo rather than give up her dog. My home wouldn't really be my home without her now. So, you know, wherever we go, we're, we're a package deal now. <laughs> Grace Key, Global News. The Sea to Sky gondola is suing its insurer for alleged negligence. The Squamish business claims that the insurer failed to procure adequate insurance for the gondola, you'll likely remember its cables were cut for a second time in 2020. The gondola is suing for damages as a result of alleged negligence, breach of contract, breach of fiduciary duty, and negligent misrepresentation. Still ahead, collateral damage in the fight against COVID. She had too much stress inside of her. The story of an ER doctor who couldn't take it anymore and a warning to others. But first, zooming into a new era for the Liberal government, how today's cabinet shuffle is being interpreted in Ottawa. Some extra traffic over here southbound at the Lionsgate Bridge tonight. This is due to a few earlier problems over near the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge. So now both bridges off the North Shore are heavily backed up and barely moving. Kermat Collision and Autoglass have been family-run and locally owned since 1973. For unmatched quality repairs and exceptional service, choose Kermac. For location information, visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau shuffled his cabinet this morning, naming new ministers to foreign affairs, industry and transport. And as our chief political correspondent, David Aiken, reports it's a shuffle that sparked a new round of election speculation. Excellency, may we proceed? Like everything else these days, the cabinet shuffle took place on the Zoom video conference platform. Bravo on this first ever virtual swearing-in ceremony. The shuffle was prompted by the departure of the industry minister, Navdeep Baines. He's a Mississauga, Ontario MP who announced he will not run again in the next election. It's time for me to focus on the most important job I have in life, being a dad. 
Baines had been one of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's closest allies and was the political lieutenant for the Liberals in the greater Toronto area. His departure is being broadly interpreted in Parliament Hill's back rooms as a signal that the Trudeau Liberals are ready to take the country to the polls this spring, likely after the tabling of the federal budget. Trudeau, though, says that is not his preference. From the very beginning of any minority parliament, uh, every political party understands that elections can happen. But as I've been consistently saying, we don't want an election. With Baines out, his political protege, Omar Al-Gabra, will play a bigger role quarterbacking liberal fortunes in the GTA. Al-Gabra Tuesday was elevated into cabinet to become transport minister. Let me first say how grateful I am for the prime minister to have put his confidence in me and appointed me to this uh, uh, to this incredible role. The former transport minister, Marc Garneau, moves into the foreign affairs job, while the incumbent there, François-Philippe Champagne, takes the job Baines had as industry minister. Finally, Winnipeg MP Jim Carr is back in cabinet. He had stepped aside to battle cancer, but his health is now improved, and so he is back in as minister without portfolio. David Aiken, Global News, Ottawa. In Health Matters tonight, the family of a Quebec doctor who died by suicide due to COVID-related stress is speaking out. The 35-year-old mother, Corinne Dion, took her own life on January 3rd. Her husband and sister hope by sharing news of her death, other lives can be saved. Global's Dan Spector reports. For the past week and a half, David Degla's life has plunged into profound darkness. She was my confidant, my love, he says. He's talking about his wife, 35-year-old Karine Dion, an emergency room doctor who worked south of Montreal. She took her own life on January 3rd. Degg was the one who found her. He says he can't go back home because the images flood back to his mind. Degg is now a single parent to the couple's son, Jacob, with whom Karine was very close. Degg says the seven-year-old has been the one consoling him. It was really COVID that killed her, in a collateral way, he says. She never caught it, but early in the pandemic, Dion got so stressed about the virus that she didn't sleep for days. She had a breakdown and had to be hospitalized. She was very um, worried about what happened to doctor. Karine's little sister, Geneviève, is an occupational therapist. She said Karine got help from a professional and from her family, but she returned to work too fast, a common problem for burnt-out healthcare workers. It's very difficult for us, actually, to help people to return in the healthcare system because it's too toxic. Karine even set up an online support group for health workers, but in recent weeks, she went on leave for stress. She felt guilty, useless, ashamed of herself, he says. She couldn't bear the guilt of being home while her overwhelmed colleagues continued to work. It's a lot of pressure. There is a pressure of not letting your co-workers down. She tried a lot of things and it's not because she didn't try, but like she was, uh, she, she had too much stress inside of her. Karine's family wants her death to serve as a wake-up call to health professionals, that if they're in a dark place, they need to reach out for help. If I can save one person, I won't have done this for nothing. Dan Spector, Global News, Roxton Pond, Quebec. And if you uh, or someone you know needs help, you can call the Crisis Centre, BC Suicide Hotline. The number is 
uh, pardon me, 1-800-784-2433. The service is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week in up to 140 languages. So appreciative of the work they do, but it's uh, taxing, obviously. Still ahead, dating in a pandemic. The first couple of weeks, we didn't see each other for like two or three weeks. How they turned their little bubble into a thriving business. And in sports COVID confusion, the Canucks fly off to Edmonton to start their season, missing a couple of key players. Hmm, what could possibly be keeping otherwise healthy young men from playing the game they love? At the start of the season. (laughs) As my father used to say, I'll give you three guesses and the first two don't count. Mm -hmm. Uh, JT Miller was not at practice today. He didn't make the trip to Edmonton for tomorrow's opening game of the regular season. The Canucks are only saying he is unavailable, just like Jordy Ben is unavailable. The uh, guess is this has something to do with COVID testing. Nothing's been officially said. The NHL is actually handling all that rather than the individual teams. But we are hearing that a Canuck player has twice had false positive tests. Positive, then negative, like a battery, positive and negative. The uh, Canucks did have Jake Vertanen on their top line today with Elias Pettersson and Brock Besser, and that will likely be line one tomorrow. I know we had a game together last year in Pittsburgh, and um, I thought we played well, except defensively we were, uh, wasn't our greatest game. So, you know, I think uh, if Jake's playing with us, then uh, we're going to have to make sure we're responsible in our own zone and then uh, continue to have that work ethic and, and create chances for our team. Yeah, that game in Pittsburgh last year, I think, was the 8-6 game where the Canucks fell apart in the third period. Okay, aside from players missing at practice today under mysterious circumstances and a change to the first line, there were other things happening with the Canucks. Jay was down at practice, and this was a practice they had just before they left for Edmonton. Training camp officially coming to an end at Rogers Arena. First, let's talk about the business at hand. All half-dozen players that the Canucks placed on waivers yesterday have cleared, but two of those players, Louis Erickson and Justin Bailey, skated with the Canucks today prior to the team flying off to Edmonton to start the season Wednesday against the Oilers. It's a strong indication that both will be part of the Canucks taxi squad and not heading down to Utica. I mean, we're trying to pick the best players that'll help our team when if that's what I mean much like you're picking your hockey team all the time we're not going to pick uh 20 forwards in 8d there's going to be you know there's going to be a blend where we'll try to think of different options or I mean we're probably going to go 17 and 9 or 16 and 10 something like that is is where we'll probably end up Expect to see some creative roster juggling between now and when the puck drops against the Oilers as the Canucks do their best to massage the salary cap. Michael Furlan placed on long-term injury. His salary savings used to sign Travis Habenick to a one-year deal worth a million and change. Now, it's going to be interesting if we see Habenick in the starting lineup against the Oilers. The veteran D-man opted out of this summer hockey bubble with the Flames. His last NHL game coming right here at Rogers Arena last February. So we're looking at a guy who hasn't skated in a National Hockey League game in almost a full year. The time off that you had alluded to, you know, I spent firstly being a dad and I got two young kids, so I was chasing my kids around all summer. Um, And afterwards, obviously, putting the work in to prepare myself for a season. Um, I knew that I was going to get an opportunity at some point, and and I knew that I had to be ready whenever it was going to come. So um, I think I trained 
probably harder than I have uh, to know that I'd be ready for this opportunity. And quite frankly, yeah, it's been a little bit of time off, but uh, there's been a lot of other teams in the league that have been off almost as long as I have as well. So, um, you know, I don't look at it at that standpoint. I think I look at it that I'm healthy, I'm ready to go. I'm certainly as eager as I could ever could be to play. And I feel ready. Um, you know, I skated a lot throughout the summer, did my work, got my work done in the gym. And uh, I feel like I can get up to speed pretty quickly here. So I'll, I'll leave it in Travis's hands, but we're going to have a conversation and, and we'll go from there. So the Canucks season starts with four road games in Alberta against the Oilers and Flames. Then they're back here at Rogers Arena for three straight against the Montreal Canadiens with the home opener coming January 20th. Closing the lid on Ice Bucket Rogers Arena, Jay Janwer, Global Sports. Now, getting back to the COVID situation, the NHL says there have been 27 positive tests during the training camps for all 31 teams. 17 of those tests were with the Dallas Stars, and that's why all Dallas games have been postponed this week. Although most of the players in Dallas apparently are asymptomatic. Now, the NHL will not start naming which players are testing positive or out for COVID-related reasons until the regular season begins tomorrow. In training camp, they did not give out any names, just numbers. Well, because of its labor dispute with the uh, players, MLS has not put out a schedule yet. But they do want to start in mid-March if they can. And if that's the case, I'm guessing because of border restrictions and they likely won't change in time, the three Canadian teams, the Whitecaps, Toronto, Montreal, will have to relocate to an American city for most of the season like they did last year. The Whitecaps were in Portland where they were closer to Vancouver, Washington than Vancouver, B.C. They may start the season playing against each other, but eventually they'll have to go to the States. The Seattle Seahawks have fired offensive coordinator Brian Schottenheimer, citing philosophical differences between himself and head coach Pete Carroll. The offense was great for Seattle at the start of the past season, but then it slowed down badly in the second half, didn't do well against the Rams on Saturday in the playoffs. Teams adjusted to them, but they didn't seem to adjust to the adjusting, as we said yesterday. So now there's been a parting of the ways. Look at this. This was after Alabama's football team, the Crimson Tide, won the national championship last night. It could go from Crimson Tide to COVID Tide with a gathering like this. And there's not a lot of masks I can see in that crowd either. You're not immune just because you have the best university football team. Thought I'd put it out there. All right. Thanks, Squire. Saw a few masks, but not many. We'll see if that turns into a super spreader event. All right, here's Andrew now with a preview of Global News at 11. And Thanks, Chris. We are keeping an eye on that windstorm that's expected to hit Metro Vancouver this evening. Plus, we'll have more on the latest disturbing attack on a homeless person. A woman had her blanket set on fire while she slept outside the QE theater. Police now looking for both a suspect and the victim. And we're learning more about a couple married for 49 years who both died of COVID-19 within hours of each other. What their family says about their passing. Those stories and more when you join us tonight at 11 o'clock. Chris, Sophie. All right, and thanks very much. Up next, love in the time of coronavirus. How a fledgling romance flourished because of the pandemic.
Well, when it comes to budding relationships, a global pandemic may not be the best time. Probably not, but one Southern Alberta couple isn't only thriving in their new romantic relationship, they've got a business relationship going too. Isabel Dacta and Corbin Gomez started out as just friends when they met in high school four years ago. Fast forward to last December when they officially started dating. But as their relationship grew, so too did the threat of COVID-19. The first couple of, of weeks, we, we didn't see each other for like two or three weeks, like didn't see each other in person because, uh, you know, we were following the, the guidelines and stuff. So that was uh, pretty challenging, but we got around it really good because, you know, we FaceTime or play video games and, <laughs> and uh, uh, video chat with each other. With the young couple both having parents working in the healthcare sector and a shortage of PPE at the beginning of the pandemic, they decided to start making reusable masks. Isabel's background in fashion came in handy when designing the masks for their new business called Seemingly Perfect. We just kind of like figure out through like trial and error which ones fit the best. So this one's like the basic one. Olsen. And this one is our newest and like recent, the way we, what we use now. With not many dating activities available during the pandemic, the pair was able to bond over their new business. Once you started up the masks, then we were uh, together so that we could do the best that we can with the masks because it's much more effective to work as a, as a cohesive team than a mm -hmm. single individual. It's just like a great experience. And I'm really glad that we were able to do it and have all the resources that we have. The duo has sold hundreds of masks across the province and plans to use most of the profits to help pay for university. Taz Dollywall, Global News. Good on them. Okay, last word on the windstorm from Christy. So wind and rain overnight, there certainly is a chance we could see some power outages, but it all comes to an end tomorrow morning. Just a chance of showers, otherwise some sun. All right, thanks, Christy. Forward to that. <laughs> no doubt. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a good night. Good night, all.